listening to the Salt Churches podcast. Here you can listen to messages, inspiration, and lessons learned about planting micro churches all across the nation. Thank you for tuning in. To find more information, you can visit us at www.saltchurches.com. This podcast is brought to you today by Salt Churches founder, Parker Green. I saw Jesus doing his ministry, and that's what we're talking about tonight is straight-up deliverance. So those of you that just raised your hand, we're going to do a little class on deliverance. Um, and just real quick before I jump into the message part, but if you want this right now, those of you that raised your hand in that moment, while people's eyes are open and your squad mates, teammates are around you right now, um, I'm going to walk us through the process of getting rid of those thoughts once and for all. Does that sound good? Because I believe if I could suggest that there is a spirit of depression that tries to attach itself to certain thoughts, especially when it feels out of control or thoughts get dropped in your head, um, and that can go if you want it to go right now. So if that was you while everyone else is seated, um, because this is what it takes to break out of thought patterns like that, I want you to stand if that's you and you want this right now. Beautiful, beautiful. All right teammates that walked out this whole process with them over the last 11 months. I want you to put a hand on them. And you can pray while I pray. Don't feel like I'm the one that has to say anything, even though I'm very loud and have a mic. I want you to know that this is the first thing that they'll need directly after we have this conversation. The first thing that they'll need is hands on them still. A little bit metaphorical there, (laughs) but walk them through this process. All right? Jesus made his prayers of deliverance very simple, so that's, it's going to be very simple. We don't need to rub a shundai too much over people, but there's an authority in you. So I want you to begin to pray over the people that you have your hands on right now. Just begin to pray. If you want to speak in your prayer language, go ahead. You can do that if you don't know what to say yet, but begin to pray. And I want those being prayed for to answer these questions. Do you want to be free? Say it out loud, yes or no. Do you want to be free? All right. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I command you, spirits of depression, to go in the name of Jesus. You have no place here. You have no authority here. We tell you to go, to leave this building, to leave these people, and to never return in the name of Jesus. Because Jesus gives joy, not as the world gives, but joy that cannot be taken away. And he loves us so that our joy may be complete. So we don't just leave an empty house in the name of Jesus. I pronounce joy over every single person standing right now in Jesus' name. That they'll be wildly joyful, exuberantly joyful, effervescently joyful. People that are obnoxiously joyful and positive and faithful, full of faith about life. I command you, spirit of oppression and depression, to go right now in the name of Jesus. I pray if there's any medication being taken right now, that the need for that medication would whack, would wane, would go away. <laughs> Almost missed that one. God, we just thank you that it would go away right now in Jesus' name. There would be no need for extra medication for a chemical imbalance that scientists aren't even sure exists. But we know dark spirits exist and that evil exists, so we cast you out right now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, let's praise God for what he's just done. 
Awesome. For those of you that weren't in our um, in in my breakout with uh, my wife and I, we talked a little bit about church. I'm just going to update you guys real quick on who I am um, as a person, a human, um, speaking to you right now. Uh, I'm originally from Spokane, Washington. Um, grew up there, moved down to Southern California my senior year of high school, then spent three years in Australia. I was at Hillsong College in Australia for three years, interning with the youth ministry out there. So I was never an alumni, so to speak, but I found one in my wife, my lovely wife. Those are my two boys that you've seen us carrying around, um, causing trouble and just intermittently screaming in the middle of the quietest possible parts of the sessions. The older one is David Leonidas, and the other one is Ethan Everest. They are Irish twins, so two and three, um, and they're definitely a handful, but a ton, a ton of fun. I love being a dad. It's the best thing ever. And Jesse, um, my lovely wife, um, went on the world race with one of the first generations of world race. What was your letter? N. So first generation N squad, right? I sometimes miss the lingo. It's like the military around here. There's like acronyms and squads and I'm like, what's happening? I'm not, I'm confused. This is like a whole level up on Christianese. It's like doubled down. Uh, so what's happening? Just to tell you guys a little bit about what we're doing, we're in Southern California in Orange County. Um, we have two churches there, micro churches. Uh, micro church is a church of 20 or 30 people uh, following Jesus together. And then uh, we have a church in Colorado Springs and a church as well about to start in October in Chicago. So essentially what happened was I got in contact with someone from AIM named Clint. Um, he um, has moved on. He's doing something else uh, right now, but he worked here for, I think, like 25 years or something like that, like a long time. He's an OG um, here. Um, but he started discipling Jesse and I, and I started reading different books. I started looking into discipleship, and I realized that I was in full-time ministry in New York City. I was a campus pastor at two different campuses alongside my wife. We were running a men's ministry, the worship ministry, blah, 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 blah. You name it, we kind of had our hands in it. Small group stuff, we did that too. Um, realized that we weren't making disciples. I was just preaching at people every week, and they'd be like, that's a great message. And then they'd like just go sleep with their boyfriend or girlfriend or move in with them due to financial reasons and still get drunk every weekend. And life was essentially the same um, for the people I was preaching at and preaching great messages at. So I hope today that this is more than a great message. <laughs> It'll actually transform your life. Reed asked me to talk about Jesus, which just so happens to be my favorite subject to talk about. He's the reason I got into this game in the first place. He's the reason I'm doing everything I'm doing. He's literally the reason I have everything that I have in my life. I'm, I don't just kind of like Jesus. Jesus isn't like a pal of mine. Jesus, I'm, I'm obsessive about who Jesus is and about trying to portray Jesus in a correct scriptural way. Not a made-up cultural Jesus, not a Brazilian model Jesus from ABC, not like a Jesus that can't actually effectually change your life. I think the Jesus that our world really likes right now never did any ministry at all. He just said some nice things that were kind of broken up statements, and they pull from that, be nice to people. Now, if I'm going to solve all of life's problems, which I think Jesus effectively actually does, would being nice to people solve all your problems? Would being a nice person even solve all your problems? Probably not right? I don't see anywhere in scripture where it says, be nice and everything is going to pan out for you. 
So what I want to introduce you to today is a Jesus that can actually change your life, not just on the race, but where you land and wherever you land in life from here on out. Because I know from my experience at PSL, people kind of float after the world race. And some people may land a job or land like into a rhythm right when they get back. But a lot of people, even if they're doing something that was planned beforehand, or they've landed a job, or they've got a community, or they're in a church, or whatever it is, a lot of times they're looking back at the world race going, how do I get that in my daily life. Maybe for some of you, the world race was a terrible experience and you're like stoked, like we're done. But I think for a lot of you, even if it was hard, it's a life transforming experience. Seeing what you've seen, knowing what you know. I was, I was talking to a friend of mine, Pat Stiller, the other day um, about salt churches um, specifically. And he'll probably be all right if I shout him out right now. But effectively, I said, look, man, you know too much. You know too much now. You know how to get out of the matrix. You know what it looks like. You know what it looks like outside a regular Christian walk in North America. Each and every person in this room right now, you already know too much. And if you can't activate the ministry of Jesus in your daily lives, if you can't just continue to walk that out, it's going to nag you. It's going to bother you, and the root of your soul and the root of who you are as a person, you're going to be so irritated if you go from here on out and, don't, and, and go and live just a regular life. I knew that once I knew I was upset, I started doing discipleship, and it started to work, right? I met this Jesus in the Gospels. There was this period in my life where I was just in the middle of ministry and completely confused as to why I wasn't seeing what I was reading in the Bible in my daily life. Completely confused as to why I was reading a gospel, hearing a gospel that wasn't effectively actually changing how I lived and how the people lived around me and seeing God move in power and seeing people actually transformed. I was confused as to why I was doing ministry and it didn't seem like things were actually working. I needed a Jesus that was working. I needed a Jesus that was real. I needed a Jesus that I could join with in ministry. So if I'm going to leave anything with you today, I want to leave you with how to join with Jesus in the ministry that he did while he was on earth. It's really, really simple. You can write this down if you're taking notes. To do what Jesus did, do what Jesus did. I know it sounds silly, but to do what Jesus did, do what he did. There's like this bracelet thing, like this is for the elder millennials in the room. The whole what would Jesus do thing? First of all, terrible context. We wouldn't 100% really know. That's a really hard thing to do. And in every waking moment, are you thinking, uh, what would Jesus do in this precise moment? Um, It's a hard question to ask in marriage because Jesus never got married. Like, what would Jesus do? You can't like open up the Gospels and see what he did with his marriage, right? What are some marriage skills he could pass along? But he can transform you into the type of person that makes a good husband or wife. They can transform you into the type of person that ministers without realizing they're actually ministering. He can turn you into the type of person that doesn't get angry, the type of person that doesn't lust, the type of person that can quit pornography, the type of person that can value other human beings, the type of person that can bring life to any situation that they encounter. You can become 
that type of person. I think that's what the ministry of Jesus really was all about. It's about transformation. And too many times, we have gospels of sin management. How many of you feel like you have had to manage sin in your life? Still trying sometimes. No? Some sinless folks in here. That's sick. Talk to me afterwards. I want your skills. I probably sinned today. Did I sin today, Jess? Yeah, always. <laughs> That's the positive and negative about marriage right there. Um, all your flaws out on the table. How's that working for you? Probably not very well. It's something I tell the guys I disciple all the time. I'm going to tell you now. You can't stop being angry by stopping being angry. You can't stop looking at pornography by stopping looking at pornography. You can't stop spending money idiotically by stopping spending money idiotically. You have to do something else to fill the gap. You have to fill whatever that is with Jesus. So it's not so much the sin itself. It's like, who am I as an actual new person? And what really is the basis of Jesus' ministry? Could you put Jesus' ministry in one word? What's his one word across the board? What did Jesus do? Who is Jesus? One word. Love. Easy, right? Everyone would say that. Even people that have seen the TV specials or people that are trying to prove some political point left or right would say the same thing. Well, Jesus is love, and love is this, so do this. How many opinions have you heard on what Jesus would do in someone's particular situation? That maybe, just maybe, may I suggest, aren't exactly scriptural. (laughs) Trying to bring Jesus on your team is the first problem that we run into. But love really is the answer to every single human being's problem. I know for me specifically, it's hard, harder than almost anything in my walk with Jesus to just accept it, to just accept the fact that he actually does really love me, that he's proven it, that he's trustworthy. And it's hard for me because when the word love gets bounced around, and I mean dragged through the dirt, destroyed, thrown in the trash, shaken up, thrown out again, and given to you, or if someone told you that they loved you, but they didn't act like it. All these filters are in front of our eyes when it comes to Jesus and what comes to God. So we approach God with this idea of love that we're defining ourselves or the world is defining for us. Here's the most unhelpful statement that the world has ever come up with. Love is love. You'll see it on commercials. You'll see it on PSAs. It's like, well, love is just love. That doesn't define anything for us. That doesn't help us actually change our lives. That doesn't help us actually engage with life. So who would like it if we defined love a little bit? Would it be helpful if we defined it? Jesus does that for us, funnily enough. He's not going to let such an important thing, such an important word, be some ethereal, out there, floaty concept. He's going to bring it down to our level for us. John 15, 9 through 17. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Can we just stop right there for a second? How does the Father love Jesus? Spending time with him, yeah? Throw out some answers. He remains with the Father. Why does he do that? Because he's loved there, right? What does the Father give Jesus? What's he actually doing? What's the tangible aspect of his love? Because if we're going to define this, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. If Jesus loves us like the Father loves him, that's a big statement. 
He gives himself. He gives him everything. Not, not one scrap, not one thing left behind. Not, not one thing left over. My sons watch Coco, by the way, and that's the little, the little yip that they do. <laughs> it's like their favorite Pixar movie of all time. There you go. They really are cute. <laughs> so I was going to bring this back around to my boys anyways. So that's perfect. Thanks, David. So what would I give for my boys? Like th- those of you that aren't parents, maybe <laughs> can't. It's like, don't take me away. I'm here for the party. I literally give them everything and anything. So, all right, you get it. You're funnier than me. You win. So think of it like this. Jesus says next, if you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's command and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Now he defines love right here. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. The Greek word there is the Greek word related to psyche, which basically means the root of your personality, who you are as a person. Think of it like this. If I cut myself open, where am I? You can't like dig around in my body and find Parker. You can even split open my skull, dig around in my brain, and you're not going to find Parker Green. It's something intangible almost, right? It's almost like the very spirit or soul of human. It's the, it's the breath that God gives human beings. It's the breath of life he puts in you. It's the reason you're aware of the things going on around you. It's the reason you can think about your thoughts. It's a very human trait. You can step back and look at the way you're thinking, which is just wild, which probably means you have a spirit. When Jesus says, lays down one, one's life for his friends, first he's talking about his, himself and he's talking to his friends. So when Jesus is, he's not just talking about laying down his body for a sacrifice for sins for all time. That's a good thing and that's a true thing. And that's how we enter the kingdom through the cross and resurrection. But what he's saying even more so is it goes way beyond that. I don't just lay down my life. I give you the keys to the kingdom. I give you my name like you'd give someone when you get married to them. Those boys have my name. They have my irritating habits and they have my good ones. It's like my son, David who is just yelping at us, picks his nose all the time. Got that from me. But he's also very handsome. Got that from me. And my son, Ethan, can't stop eating. Like, nonstop. Like, I'm honestly a fat kid at heart. Like, I can't stop eating. Like, today, I went to a smokehouse that was like this crappy trailer. And I'm like, uh, burgers are for... By the way, is food cheap here or is it just me? Maybe from California. It's like... It's like a $4 burger, I'll have three. Thank you. But I can't stop eating, but he also has beautiful, curly, luscious hair that's like a vacation that's too expensive for anybody to go on. And I also, I also have that hair when I grow it out. It's beautiful. So you get both, right? But what Jesus is essentially saying here, the first thing that he talks about in the way that he does ministry is laying down his life for people. That's what real love is. It's not just dying for somebody like you would in battle or like you'd lay down your life for your family or something if a robber broke in just to give you really real results or like real examples. He's talking about laying down who you are as a person for the people around you that you're following Jesus with, your friends. Now, 
If you could walk into a room or a church like that or a ministry like that, would you join? You'd either have to or not, right? Because it would be so convicting to see people love each other like that. It's so simple. The command he gives us is to love one another. And the, and the ministry of Jesus was love, but it was real love. It was definable love. It's tangible love. It's relentless love. It's unstoppable love. It's, it's love that wouldn't let go of the idea that the, that the men that he created, the men and women he created, mankind that he created, needed to be redeemed under one name and reconnected to God. See, all our relationships in one way, shape, or form are broken. It started with Adam and Eve breaking their relationship with God, and they break their relationship with each other, and Jesus comes back as the second Adam to completely restore relationship. If you could fix your complete relationship with God, have a perfect relationship with the Father, have a perfect relationship with the people around you, what would life actually be like? It would be like heaven on earth, like the kingdom of heaven on earth. Because think of it this way. Uh, Jesse and I love the Philippines, and we need to go back. The last time we went was before kids. It's, like, difficult to go over there. We worked with Josie over there. I don't know if anyone was with Josie, um, but my wife, I don't know if you can tell from her Nordic looks, but she's actually quarter Filipino. Um, So we love hanging out over there. Um, And I love how proud Filipinos are of their background, too. Probably my favorite people, like, I've ever visited in a foreign country ever. But It's amazing to me, and you've experienced this too, because you guys walked around and saw a lot of poverty on this trip, right? Because America is just unbelievably rich. Even poor people here have enough for the most part, right? So here's the thing. Like, it blew me away how happy they are, right? And I've been sold this whole thing my whole life that if I can amass enough stuff, if I get enough things, then I'll be happy, and it's weird how even like as Jesse and I progress in life and we start to get more stuff, doesn't make me any happier. <laughs> and a million people are going to tell you the same thing. There's some point where the happiness threshold is gone. But you could live in a dump. I guarantee you, any of you in this room could live in a dump right now. Know for sure that you're loved, especially by a father and a mother. I'd be the happiest human being on planet Earth. Now imagine... Just imagine you had a big brother, a long lost big brother that dad sent out to die for you so you could come back in the family because you're a rebel. You've broken all the rules. You're actually waging war against your father at the time, the one that loves you. And instead of crushing you and judging you and burning you like he could because he's all powerful, he decides to send his favorite son to die for you, to give you his name and to give you his inheritance. So you were a rebel before, sinning against God on the wrong team, and he died for you then. Very clear in Romans. And the ministry that Jesus gives us is the ministry of reconciliation, right? How in the world can we reconcile? Look around the world at you right now. How's the world's plan working out for reconciliation? Since talk of real reconciliation started, probably when I was in high school, we've gotten more divided from what I can tell. Or the divisions that were already there have been blatantly exposed. One of the two, maybe both at the same time. So what's the ministry of reconciliation for us? Jesus. It's the Son of God. If, if we try and reconcile ourselves or reconcile ourselves to God or to each other under any other name, it doesn't work. In, in the long run, it does not work. 
Because we have to lay down ourselves for the people next to us just like Jesus did. For the individuals around us. For the church. For the people that we say we love. And here's the epidemic in our culture. Posting love. And it's not just Facebook and it's not just Instagram. You post it in text. Yeah, let's hang out soon. Will you though? Is that person you actually want to hang out with or you just want to get them off your back? Yeah, for sure. Let's do that. Yeah, let's, let's get together soon. What does love really look like? What is tangible love and laying down who you are as a person for other people? It looks like you giving to a person from yourself. That's why Jesus says, greater love has no one than this to lay down his life for his friends. In the second part, let's go to verse 15. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I've made known to you. Do you see that? There's no holding back in the kingdom. There's no restraining. There's no, oh, I can't give you this. There might not be enough. The abundance in the kingdom is so much that you can obey. Do you hear that? Until you know the abundance of Jesus Christ, it's impossible to obey. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. He says it again, love each other. Second way Jesus defines love. If you love me, do what I say. Now, what does Jesus say in this scripture to do? Love each other. Specifically, your neighbor. What I grow weary of is people loving people 10,000 miles away, but not able to knock on their neighbor's door and bring them cookies or be there for them when it's obvious that they're shut-ins or that they're broken or that they're shouting at their, their wife or shouting at their husband every night. Their yard is a mess. Their life is a mess. You can tell. And you're like, help the refugees. Refugees from the kingdom of heaven living right next to you. It's a start. Go to a refugee camp and help. By all means, do it, but actually do it. Don't post about it. Give money at least. Give time. But you don't actually care if you don't give any of those things. And I know that's a hard word for us as millennials to hear because you want to, like, advocate. But Jesus was an advocate. and What did he do as an advocate? Died (laughs) for the people he was advocating for. Died. Went to the cross. Yeah, I'm an advocate for the human race. I will now give them everything that I have. My person is now theirs. And we must do what he says. How? By knowing that the Father loves us and gives us everything. You'll never run out of love the more you give it away. Too many of us think it's something that can be withheld because we've been in manipulative relationships where love has been withheld when we do something wrong. Too many of us hold back to try and control people to try and get them to do what we want. We don't love them. We don't let them make their own decisions because we think we know what's best for them. But the reality is Jesus tells us to love people and this is his command, love each other. Does he add conditions? Absolutely not. How could he? Because our Father in heaven makes it rain on the evil and the good. Be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. That's an insane statement, but how do you perfect your life in Christ? You love people no matter what. You forgive people no matter what. It doesn't mean let poisonous, toxic, rebellious, horrible people into your life and let them influence you, but it does mean that God gives them a shot at repenting and following him. He gives us absolutely everything. So let me do walk through this really quick. 
two quick stories about the way Jesus ministered to two different people. It'll give us an idea of how to do it. First, get alone. Number one, get alone. Mark 1.35, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. To do what Jesus did, do what Jesus did. If you can leave with one thing today, spend time with Jesus. Spend time in his word. Be alone with him. And every single one of you knows this, right? How many of you have heard this before? Be with Jesus. Get your quiet time or whatever people call it. Okay, so we're going to change this a little bit. Get out your phone. I want you to open your calendar. You're back in America now, so we use calendars here. Welcome. Pick a time on your calendar when you're going to spend time with Jesus. Make an appointment. Make it recurring. And some of you are going to say, oh, this is just a religious thing. Well, if you're not doing it, it's better than nothing. Here's what I tell people. Treat Jesus like a person, like he's knocking on your door. And that's what you'll get. You'll get a resurrected Jesus. Treat him like a person. Don't delay appointments. Don't walk away from the king of the universe when you make an appointment with him. Does that seem crazy? No matter what your opinion on our president is right now, if you get a letter from the White House asking for your presence, you're either going to confirm or deny, but take it seriously. Am I right? So the king of the universe who speaks light into existence, we're like, you know what? I'm going to sleep in. We'll talk, we'll talk about it tomorrow. Put it in your calendar and put it on repeating. That's going to help you. That's how a lot of the guys I disciple started. And there's a joy in it. It's like crazy. Okay. There's two stories. The rich young ruler and the centurion. You guys know these stories, right? I'm just going to read the full passage of Scripture. Can I encourage you guys? Read passages of Scripture, not just snippets of Scripture. Not just like Pinterest quote Scripture. Like get in there, get a real tangible Bible, and read whole passages so you know what's going on. It really helped me when I started doing that. Matthew 19, 16 through 20. Just then, just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus getting a little snarky. Jesus replied, there's only one who is good, capital O. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. So he's looking for a way out already. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, remember we talked about perfection? Go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. What an invitation. This guy could have been one of the 12. We don't talk about that very much. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You see, in the Jewish culture at this time, the richer you were, the more God was blessing you. Has anyone heard of a culture similar to that? 
<laughs> Jesus turns it on his head. And if you'll notice, when he's listing the commandments, he leaves one out. That's very important. Thou shalt not covet. You see, this man wanted more. More wealth. And he was looking at the solution to his heartache, and you can feel it in this passage. You can feel that he wants to be good. You can feel that he wants to be right before God. You can feel that he desires to follow Jesus. He really wants to, like so many of us want to. But Jesus takes it out of the ethereal, takes it out of the metaphor, and says, slam, right in his face. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Show me. Show me that you love me and want to follow me. Don't talk about me. Don't talk about the commandments. Act on them. And then go one step further. Don't just not covet. Give everything you have away. And he misses his opportunity for the kingdom. And you know what Jesus does? He's sad, first of all. And he turns around and he tells his disciples how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom. How rich are we? Like, let's just put it out there. Everyone knows Americans generally are rich compared to the rest of the world. It's hard to give up our things, our little things that we collect over life for Jesus. But he says, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Does he go chasing him down the street? Does he try and control the decision that he makes? No. That's how love operates in a situation like this. It doesn't feel very loving, does it? Feels like it's like you leave the 99 and chase someone, blah, blah, blah. But Jesus goes, Well, this one decided to walk away. But let me tell you, God can make it happen if he would just choose. You don't see Jesus controlling outcomes in his ministry. If you guys are going into ministry at all, in any kind of ministry, whether it is business or whether it is what we call full time ministry or a church or whatever it is, whatever you're going into, don't control outcomes. It will drive you nuts. Even with growing a church, Jesus doesn't say anything about us growing a church. He says, make disciples. He's responsible for the growth. So we can't have the glory. Isn't it insane that he doesn't chase him? Because for those with a pastoral heart in the room, they're like, but if you could just convince him. Jesus was right in front of the dude. What more evidence does he need? He's watching him heal people. He's watching literally lepers be cleansed, and then he can't give up his stuff. He sees the kingdom. So our job, like the ministry of Jesus, is to show and tell. Show people the kingdom, tell them about about it, and give them an opportunity to act, but do not try and control the outcome. You'll be dragging people your whole life. The centurion is the other one. Matthew 8, 5 through 13. And I'm going to give you an idea of how awkward this was. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and this one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. How good would it be to amaze Jesus with our faith? And said to, the, to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. What he's saying is in all the people of Israel, including you lackeys that are right behind me, that have been following me this whole time, I have not found such great faith. 
I say to you that many will come from the east and west and will take places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mm, Cozy Jesus. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Let me give you an idea of how awkward this is. So this is around zero AD, right? So we're looking at about 50, 60 years before Jerusalem is invaded. The walls are broken down. People are slaughtered, right? By the general Pompey, the Roman general Pompey. The last stand, the last holdout of the Jewish people before, the, before Rome completely took over Judea and broke up the kingdom was the temple because it had big walls and they could hide in there. It's about 10,000 Jews in the temple. That gives you an idea of how big it was. He doubles down on the siege. Pompey doubles down on the siege, eventually breaks into the temple, slaughters 10,000 Jews inside. Then he walks into the Holy of Holies. You get that? Where the very presence of God is, where priests have to wear bells to go in just in case they pass out from the presence of God, and they'll drag them out by a rope to make sure they're still moving. A Roman general that sacrifices pigs to his god Zeus walks in. Comes out and says, didn't see him in there. Orders everyone to leave, cleanse the temple, and he allows them to have their religion. So, there's some awkwardness in this story that we can't feel. That everyone reading this, especially in Matthew, because it was written to Jewish people, would understand immediately. These are the people oppressing them. These are the people that are throwing them in prison. These are the people that are taxing them unlawfully. These are the people that broke them. These are the people standing in the crowd, mind you, that had a cousin or a nephew or, or a, not a nephew probably, a grandpa that died or a father that died in that temple that was slaughtered by a Roman general. And Jesus turns around and says, I have not found greater faith in the kingdom of heaven in all of Israel, but in this man who rules over you, who oppresses you, who's breaking your backs. Love with no conditions. This makes no sense. And maybe the centurion was a good guy, but he still wore SPQR, the mark of the legion. These are the people that destroyed a lot of the Mediterranean in order to rule it. You have to realize that what happened here is completely out of the ordinary, and we are called to minister in the same way. We're called to continue the ministry of Jesus. And the way that we pursue that is unbroken fellowship with him first, and then obedience to what he asks us. And what he asks us to do is love people. Lay down our life for people. Why? There's only one way you can do this. Because you have the abundance of the love of the Father. It's the only way. It will break you to do this any other way. And the only way, and this is the, this is the kicker, this is how weird God is. You can't really realize how much he loves you until you roll the dice on how much he loves you and experience it for yourself. You can't just meditate on it and figure it out. You have to act it out in real life. You have to figure it out by faith. 
You have to walk it out. You have to love people that are unlovable. You have to forgive people that are unforgivable. You have to do it. The way to do the ministry of Jesus is to simply do it. And I'll say it one more time so everybody remembers. To do the things that Jesus did, do the things that Jesus did. Just walk through Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. These incredible books that made it through history, even though everyone that wrote them was probably slaughtered or boiled in oil or fed to the lions. And you get to read it in your living room all comfortably and say, oh, should I obey Jesus or should I not? We should. And not just because we should, because it's a duty. But because he gives us his name and the power to do it. He gives us the love that overflows in us. He gives us the ability to do it. It is not just an empty promise to say, oh, you fell short again. That's too bad. That's really crappy. Oh, I guess you'll need me. It's like, oh, I always fall short. Yeah, okay. But the reality is that's not Jesus' goal for you, to fall short of love. He wants you to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. Wouldn't that be better? So let's go out and just do it. Don't complicate this to disobey. I find that when I start complicating the words of Jesus, it's because I don't want to do it. Like, oh, you got to do this and this and this first and all the things before you actually do that. I've got to be trained a little bit better. It's like, no, the training is now. It's life. It's everything that you encounter because that's what discipleship is. So that's it. Wrap it up there. Thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning in today. We hope you feel inspired, encouraged, and empowered to change the world for the name of Jesus. Make sure to tune in and listen to our other podcasts and download our app, Salt Churches, found on iTunes. We hope to see you and hear from you soon. Thanks. Have a great day.